This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. of uh, Epstein documents was released about uh, six and a half hours ago. And uh, this was one day after the first tranche that we talked about yesterday. These newly unsealed filings um, also featured dozens of names related to a civil lawsuit against Jelaine Maxwell, who was sentenced last year to 20 years in prison on sex trafficking and other charges for helping Epstein sexually abuse teenage girls. Uh, Being named in the filings does not equate to being accused of wrongdoing. Um, Again, it's 328 pages. I just kind of glanced through them. I don't see... Tremendously much there, honestly, at this point, of even if you're just interested in salacious stuff. I have my doubts about whether, you know, it's fair to put all these people's names out there when none of them have been charged with a crime. One interesting part that has been uh, picked up by some in the press is that former President Clinton allegedly stormed into the Vanity Fair newsroom and threatened staffers to not publish Stories about sex trafficking allegations against his, quote, good friend, Jeffrey Epstein, according to these newly um, newly unsealed court documents. So the claim about Clinton included in this latest batch uh, that was released yesterday was mentioned by Epstein accuser Virginia Jufre in a 2011 email exchange with a journalist from the Daily Mail. So this is literally triple hearsay. Okay. Um, this, the reporter was advising Jufre on whether to do an interview and sell a photo to the publication. The reporter was offering to help her land a book deal at the time. And then uh, Jufre writes in the email to the reporter, when I was doing some research into Vanity Fair yesterday, it does concern me what they could want to write about me, considering that Bill Clinton walked into Vanity Fair and threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend, Jeffrey Epstein. That's basically the most salacious aspect of it. We don't know where Jufre learned of the alleged threats from. She was not present for it. So we're now repeating something that was sent in an email by Jufre that she heard from someone who heard that that Clinton had said this. So I don't know how much value any of this stuff has. Um, Graydon Carter, for what it's worth, the uh, editor, former editor of Vanity Fair, said the to the UK Daily Telegraph, this categorically did not happen. You know, and you know why? I don't believe it did happen. Because if it did happen, one of the people in that room, unless it was one other individual, but the way this email's written, it makes it sound like it was a full room at uh, Vanity Fair. One of the people in that room would have told someone who would have told someone. Right? I mean, that's my view. All right. So uh, I'm going to, we're doing, we have a really interesting guest on uh, Jeffrey Epstein on Monday, who we're going to talk to. 
And we're going to delve into a little bit more of what I alluded to yesterday, the idea that Jeffrey Epstein might have been a spy. Well, if not a spy, an intelligence resource for somebody. So we're going to get into that uh, in a big way on Monday. So film at 11. And if there are any any interesting disclosures that come out about these tapes, we'll go through those as well. We're going to talk Stephen King and whether or not he killed John Lennon in about 20 minutes. You know, unlike the JFK assassination, where I consider myself pretty open-minded, I could be persuaded either way. I... I am not open-minded on this one. <laughs> I do not think uh, that uh, that Stephen King killed John Lennon, but we will ask Steve Lightfoot, who has been saying this for years, and uh, I don't know if he's ever been sued or anything by Stephen King. Well, we'll get into it. We'll find out. Now, I consider myself kind of an old-school guy. I like old-school things. I have a landline telephone that's in the style of a rotary phone. I like um, to, you know, I like I like to wear a fedora, especially now that we're going into the cold winter months. I find a fedora really complements uh, an outfit. I like, um, you know, I like anything that's vintage, both in terms of style, in terms of use. Uh, we still have a VCR. We still have cable. Right? We, I still have radios in every house. And I have a beeper, which until recently I was paying to keep on, but... Ultimately, I decided not to renew it because no one was beeping me. Chances are if people wanted to reach me, they would just call my mobile phone or text me. So I wondered what was the value of spending even $10 a month to keep this beeper on just for the novelty of having a beeper. But I almost did it. And for a year or two years, I did do it. I may bring it back. But um, the point is, I like old school things. There's one old school element of style that I've never really gotten behind. And that is the old-fashioned cloth handkerchief. Now, when I say a handkerchief, I mean a functional handkerchief. I'm not talking about the kind that you stick into your coat pocket to be decorative. No, I'm talking about an old-school handkerchief. When, um, you know, I have always had this kind of chronic sinusitis. From the time I was a kid, I've always had this. And I I get nosebleeds a lot, and I almost have a, not a runny nose, but I often get a stuffy nose. I've always had that since I was a child. And then when I was in the fifth grade, I had my adenoids removed. You very rarely hear about that anymore, by the way. You ever notice that? Tonsils you don't hear about anymore, and adenoids you don't hear about anymore. But when I was in the fifth grade, I had my adenoids removed, and they said that would fix it. Really didn't fix it, not at least that I'm aware of. I still do feel like I have to blow my nose a lot. So my grandfather, you know, speaking of grandparents, as we were doing last hour, my grandfather, who who I was very close to, he was an Italian immigrant, he would always give me a handkerchief. When I had to blow my nose. And I have to tell you, I thought it was the grossest thing in the world to take a piece of cloth, fill it with mucus, and then put it back into your pocket instead of throwing it away. And then when you needed to blow your nose later, to then again blow your nose into it and then use that same thing until it's completely unusable. And then... Throw it in the washing machine. But my grandfather, every day of his life, and, you know, he was not necessarily um, a, uh, you know, a a man about town. You know, he was a regular working class guy. He was a beautician. He 
every day of his life, had a cloth handkerchief. And I'm wondering if this is worth trying. Because I've never been a handkerchief guy, but I, I, I so earlier I was thinking about this because I was looking around and the room that we were in didn't have any uh, facial tissues. So I ended up having to blow my nose with uh, a paper towel. But I'm thinking, should I become a handkerchief guy? Should I at least try it out? So I um, went on to uh, an e-commerce website that you're probably familiar with that I've criticized for monopolistic practices, but which can sell you everything from books to DVDs. And I put a package of handkerchiefs into my cart, but I haven't purchased it yet. I'm wondering if any of you are handkerchief guys and what the benefit of carrying a handkerchief is over just carrying some disposable facial tissues, you know, like a a little small thing, a Kleenex. Is there any value to it? Because my hunch is maybe there's not. And as much as I want to be, you know, uh, of an older, an old school manner in terms of style and substance, I, I just, that's one that I'm not sure I can embrace. Am I missing something? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. I'm still considering getting it because there is something cool about, you know, on a hot day taking maybe a dab of the handkerchief and wiping your temples with it. You know, it maybe if there is an emergency nosebleed or something and there are no facial tissues to be found anywhere, you uh, grab the handkerchief and you use it to stop your nosebleed. Maybe, if, uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, there's I've read several books about being a gentleman. Uh, One, I think, is called The Modern Gentleman. One is called The uh, Gentleman's Handbook. And if I'm not mistaken, and again, it's been a while since I've read these books, but if I'm not mistaken, both of them call for carrying a handkerchief. I'm wondering if anyone actually does this. 800-848-9222. Let me know. 800-848-9222. And then we'll talk about the assassination of John Lennon. And then uh, about an hour from now, we have uh, denunciations and Robert Davi. All right. um, Let me say a quick hello to Silas, the musical superstar. Hello, Silas. So I totally agree with you with the um, handkerchiefs. Uh, I I would only carry one for looks and emergency. Do you carry one, though? Do you carry one? No, actually, I don't. don't. I just have uh, tissue, you know, tissues. But on the Maxwell um, thing and uh, Epstein, yeah, he was he was murdered because the billionaires didn't want their names out there. Now, there are so many unfair things about this case. One, she's the only one in jail. Two, there's no complaint of. There's no, there's, there's nobody making a complaint. And three, you know, the, where this island is, if it's legal or not frowned on, you know, it's just like if you smoke pot in a country that smoking pot is legal, and you don't know what the, these women were paid. Right. Well, they, exactly, they weren't forced; yeah. they were paid to well, be there. Yeah, and again, size. We're going to get into this on Monday, uh, but I think what you're pointing to there is there are a lot of advantages to being wealthy. Uh, you buy a lot of privileges that regular people like us don't have, right? I mean, I, I think that's really the cautionary tale, the fundamental, the fundamental 
takeaway from the Epstein case, at least to me. 800-848-9222. Mark in Kingston. Mark, you carry a handkerchief? Yes, Frank. It's an unbelievable topic. It's it's right on cue. I've been carrying for about 30 years, 25 years. I had my nose broken in sports Ooh. and uh, probably a scuffle. And um, I have sniffles, but it's I grab it like I grab my keys on my wallet every day. I have, it doesn't matter. Uh, summertime, wintertime, I just make sure. And it has to be the right. It sounds sounds crazy, but there's a little bit of a science to it. It has to be 100% cotton. If it's, uh, if it's a mix, it, 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 sometimes it doesn't work. But I can tell you that it beats reaching for tissues crumpled up. And also, it's very seldom that it's a... Um, completely fluid uh, uh your explanation doesn't happen too often um but it, it's just that sometimes it, you'll, you'll feel like you have to breathe a little better and you just want to clear your nasal passages well let me and ask you mark just, but why is that better than say a small container you know a small little plastic thing of disposable facial tissues oh i'm not saying it's better it might be better for you with the, the little container with me, I found out just just throwing it in your back pocket. Uh, sometimes you won't use it all day, but you might need it for one time. You're trying to go out to eat or something, before, you know, and mm-hmm. before you go in, you, you just clear your nasal passages or whatever, so you can smell the food, taste the food better. All right. Well, um, uh, okay, and okay. I mean, look, I, I still am not necessarily convinced. So uh, Ellen, who's one of our greatest listeners. She just sent me an SMS text message, and you can do so as well. Eight one six eight Morano. Who writes, uh, don't use handkerchiefs. My husband has used them for years, and I agree that it's unsanitary. You can throw tissues away. That's kind of where I am on this, right? I mean, to I don't want to be gross here, but you're blowing mucus into cloth, and then what do you do? You just throw this this mucus-filled piece of cloth into the into the washing machine? Isn't that kind of gross? I mean, I realize it's all cleaned out, but I don't know. I feel the same way about disposable diapers. We never did that with uh, my son, but my siblings, my younger siblings, they experimented with exp- uh, with um, reusable diapers, I should say, not disposable, reusable diapers in their youth. And I thought that was kind of gross. You do your business in a diaper and you just throw it into the washing machine? I don't know. I don't know. I, again, um, Mark clearly is a handkerchief believer, but I'm not with him. Not with him yet. Tony, you are going to add something? My father used to um, have a handkerchief. That was his thing. And he always used to tease me like, you need a handkerchief, you need a handkerchief. That wasn't my thing. I was just a tissue man. Why was he a handkerchief guy, though? That was just his thing. Um, I, I don't know. And, you know, it's funny. One Christmas, uh, he gave me a, a box of handkerchiefs for, for a Christmas present. You know, but that just wasn't my thing. I'm like you. Just give me a tissue, a box of tissues, and when I'm done, I just throw it away. But again, what I'm missing is if I could be persuaded by Mark or your 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 dad or someone else that okay, a handkerchief is better than tissues because of X, right? Tell me the X. Like, wh- what am I missing that where the handkerchief is superior? Because from what it sounds like so far, is it's not. And I did not say it's snot. I said it is not. Um, it it isn't because, and that's why no one carries them anymore, or not nobody, but nobody except Mark. 
800-848-9222. Tom, where are you on the handkerchief situation? I, I, am, I am fully in with it. First of all, I consider it the trappings of a genteel society. It's like being able to go someplace and have your shoes shine. It's what a gentleman does. And it was always two handkerchiefs. You had one for show in your pocket and one for blow. Okay? A gentleman always had a handkerchief with him. And if you did nothing but throw it out afterwards, it was just a piece of cloth. But you had it so you could so you could use it and you could also give it to someone else when it was clean. Obviously. Oh, okay. Right. Well, so I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that, and I'm with you on the trappings of a genteel society, which is why, which is the aspect of it that appeals to me. But when you say one for show and one for blow, the one that you blow, do you throw that one away? Well, no. I some people some people did, but but I my father and my grandfather and 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 I would buy them in copious amounts, and and after you wash them a couple of times. They, they they don't even look good enough to, to, to keep so, so so they become rags you just it's just something that a gentleman carries with him and it's and it's part of, uh, of what you dispose of because you use it because because that's what you have it's, it's part it's it's part of your accoutrement that as, as right. being a okay. gentleman I like I, that Tom. see I, that I am sympathetic to that right and even though I'm not sold on the practical use of that I might experiment with this. It's in my cart right now. Uh, my experiment with this for the reasons that you just decided that you just cited. I feel like it is a part of the gentlemanly brand, but it's the practical aspect of it where I'm. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sold. Eddie is in Babylon. Hi, Eddie. Let me get to you, Frank. Yeah, listen, it's very interesting. I'm sitting in my kitchen, and on the refrigerator, I can send you a picture. It's my dad with a handkerchief, a faded one around his head in the garden. My mother just snapped a picture one day, and it is one heck of a picture of him. I love it. I think it's uh, it's nostalgia for myself, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about, as my father would call me, your old man. Uh, there's still some in his drawer. Some are dark. Some are faded. You know, he... He put a roof on. He dug a well. He put a dormer on. He always had a handkerchief on his head, and um, you know, for sweat purposes. Um, if you cut yourself, you have something right away to put in there. Okay. As for blowing, as for blowing into you, I'm in the medical field, so um, you, you call mucus mucus because it has mucosaccharides in it, which are sugars that you know if you get sick, bacteria will grow in it. But you know, it's like. Anything else with a with a cloth handkerchief, you'll blow your nose and then you'll fold it back up into a square, and you're you're not going to use the same part of it. I think it only has so many uses. You throw so it. So, do you the, carry uh, one, Eddie? I know you said your dad did, but do you carry one? I I, I do have one. Not all the time, though. Um, I, I don't think of it. I think it was more of a. Uh, I, I think it was more something that happened, you know, um, to our fathers and our grandfathers. Uh-huh. You know, I think it was like car keys. You know, you didn't have a cell phone back then, but you had your car keys, your glasses, your right. your handkerchief. Right. Yeah, and well, then when you go out and get dressed up, Frank, you know, you'll have a white one in your pocket. Sure. You know, you no, guys no, no, no. I get the decorative aspect of it. I, I get the decorative well, aspect of it completely. I'm talking about, like, for a practical use. And, um, all right, you know, I might experiment with this. I may try it for a couple of weeks, see how... How it goes, but I, I remain unconvinced. Jeffrey in the Queens. Hi, Jeffrey. Hey, Frank. 
I can't believe it. The memories you brought back. Over my dad, folding like your last caller said, you, you got to find a clean spot. So you let, you only have so many uses because you can't, you know, you run, you run out of clean spots. But I remember the day, I don't know whether I was 8, 10, 12, but the day that I confronted him or said, Dad, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe, there wasn't, maybe there wasn't paper available back in the 20s and 30s when he, started, you know, when he was a young, a young person and he developed that habit. I mean, maybe that's the answer. But I, I, I agree with you 100% that it, was so, it struck me as a young boy as so disgusting that you would put it back in your pocket and then, and then put it in the washing machine. That, I didn't even think about that at the time. Just That's it. Right, thank you, Jeffrey. All right. Did Stephen King kill John Lennon? My answer is no. However, if he did, that is one of the most remarkable unsolved crimes of all time. You're going to meet an author in a moment who has dedicated the vast bulk of his life to proving that Stephen King killed John Lennon. We'll explore it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I have been intrigued by a man that calls talk radio and he'll call to talk about, you know, this subject or that subject. And then at some point in his call, he will say, for more information or to know the real truth, check out LennonMurderTruth.com. So many, many years ago, I think we're talking maybe even 20 years ago, I went to this website and I, I couldn't tell if... What was on there was meant to be a satire, a parody of people that had odd conspiracy theories, or if it was sincere. And because, to me, the fundamental claim on the website sounded so outlandish and bizarre, and something that I had not heard anyone else ever mention, I think, oh, this has got to be a parody. This has got to be similar to that guy who says birds are not real and the birds are just spying on us. 
or some weird QAnon thing. This was even before QAnon. But I have become convinced after talking with this gentleman a few times on the radio and reading more of what's on the site that this is very, very sincere. And if he's right, this will be the most remarkable conspiracy theory of all time. Now, it all begins with the death of John Lennon. Many of you may remember where you were when you heard Howard Cosell on Monday Night Football announce this. Remaining, John Smith is on the line, and I don't care what's on the line, Howard, you have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we had to take. Frank? Indeed it is. John Lennon, not only a great musician, but a a really great progressive thinker, an activist for things like peace and other things. Well, I'm uh, very pleased to be joined by Steve Lightfoot, the author of the booklet Stephen King Shot John Lennon, which you can get on the website LennonMurderTruth.com. Steve, thanks for joining me on the radio. Good morning. Thank you, Frank. Uh, Steve, let's begin with the, even before we get to uh, the the evidence of why uh, you believe Stephen King killed uh, John Lennon, uh, let's talk just more broadly. I think everyone knows Stephen King is a famous um, novelist, mostly for horror, but other things as well, written a lot of interesting books over the years. Why would Stephen King want to kill John Lennon? The the number one emotion is rage against his father who walked out on him when he was two and a half years old. John Lennon's father also walked out on him, and yet John Lennon turned out great, while Stephen King turned out uh, working at a laundromat trying to eke out a career as a writer. And he was approached by the powers that be, and they made him a deal. We love what you do. We want to promote fear and horror. And, you know, I don't know if he met them or they met him, but some kind of a deal was made. And I'm glad that we get to the evidence last because, you know, it's kind of like I, I, I go to my friends and I have a handful of diamonds in my hands. And I go, look, look, trillions of dollars worth of diamonds. And they hit the bottom of my hands that are cut and scatter the diamonds all across the, the bushes. And they go, where, where? This, this truth is the biggest expose of all time. This is the biggest news story since 2,000 years ago. This is the kind of a story that is so big, we cannot handle it. So if Stephen King admitted he did it. If he admitted, well, well, I yeah, want to get to that in a moment, though. But um, just so I understand the motive, so Stephen King was driven by rage in that he uh, ended up in a very different place than John Lennon did, even though they were uh, coming from similar familial circumstances. And someone else, some other entity, came to Stephen King and said, "If you carry out this murder of 
uh, John Lennon, then we're going to make you a superstar writer? Is that basically the crux of why Stephen King would engage with this? That's part of it. But also, the other element involved is supreme jealousy. John Lennon was in a class of his own. He was without peer in this world. He was he had more wisdom in his pinky than a whole human race has collectively. He was that magic, magic, magic person, one in a trillion that comes along that really is in tune with the universe better than the rest of us and was made to lead the human race. And these are exactly the kinds of people that our government kills. And I want to say this. I don't know if you're Jewish or not, but Howard Cosell, Barbara Walters, Larry King, Albert Goldman are basically the only people who have ever mentioned the words Mark Chapman on their lips. They're all Jewish media. So I think oh boy. if the Jews we were go. behind this, that they thought he was literally the second coming and that scared them. Um. All right. Well, okay. Uh, putting aside the Jewish aspect of that for for a second, uh, let's talk about Mark David Chapman. Uh, Mark David Chapman. Uh, now, the one thing I will absolutely concede is that Mark David Chapman looks a lot like Stephen King. Can't dispute that. There's no arguing that. However. Uh, Mark David Chapman was on Larry King's program. I believe you just referenced Larry King. And mm-hmm. um, he. this is a little bit of an interview that uh, Mark David Chapman did with Larry King back in the, I believe this was in the uh, mid to late 1980s. I don't have the date in front of me. I think it was around 1988 or so. This is uh, Mark David Chapman on Larry King. I was standing there with a gun in my pocket. Knew you were going to shoot him? So, sorry? Knew you were going to shoot him? Absolutely. Okay. Tried not to, praying not to, but knowing down deep it was probably going to come to that. Did you know it would be that night? Did you know you would see him again? Yes, I knew that morning, oddly, when I left the hotel, I, I had some type of premonition that this was the last time I was going to leave my hotel room. I hadn't seen him up to that point. That's what makes it interesting. I wasn't even sure he was in the building. And then uh, I left the hotel room bought a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, signed it to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield, and wrote underneath that, this is my statement, underlining the word this, the emphasis on the word this. I had planned not to say anything after the shooting. Walked uh, briskly up Central Park West to 72nd Street and began milling around there with the fans that were there, Jude and Jerry and uh, later a photographer that came there. And then it's about an eight-minute interview. It's available on the YouTube. People can watch it. But why, I guess, my question, Steve, is why would Mark David Chapman admit to killing Steve, uh, uh, admit to killing John Lennon if he didn't? Okay, well, first of all, let me, let me go back to Larry King. I confronted Larry King on uh, uh, a, a KABC over here in the West Coast a long time ago on Ron Owen's show. And I told him, you knowingly interviewed a, a scapegoat who was paid to lie to the, to the universe, and you did that, and you knew in advance. And then I was cut off, and Ron goes, I'm sorry about that, Larry. And Larry King goes, it's okay, Ron. It's all going to come out eventually anyway. So Larry King is admitting that he was part of a scam. Well, first there's of all, nothing I, more powerful. Uh, there's nothing more powerful scam-wise than to have a scapegoat. To have someone who admits it, 
I can't tell you how many people have told me, well, they caught him on the spot. He admitted it. You're crazy. No, I'm not. You're crazy. That's what they do. They give you some, he went that away, some false lead, get you looking that way while they're doing something else this way. It's, and he probably did it because he blames Lennon for his mental problems because he had a bad LSD trip. Wait, he so was insane to begin with. Chapman. I've talked to, Chapman. Yeah, I've talked to, yeah, I've talked to people who were in the Attica prison in the cell block where he was supposed to be all this time. And they said they've never seen him. And their opinion is that Chapman's living in a witness protection situation with his family, with his, with his parents, and that he only goes to prison for photo ops. Uh-huh. So and that the warden, the warden, the, the governor, the mayor, the, the, everybody involved is New York corrupt. All right. So uh, Chapman, when I ask the question of why he would say that he committed this murder when he didn't, your view is he's actually not in prison. He's uh, somewhere else enjoying life and being free. That's right. In fact, if you look at the Barbara Walters interview, everyone else in the jail has their face obscured. You know, the guard, the, the warden, the this, the that. It's all in the shadows, all kind of spooky. And let me tell you, the, the people, they know. I mean, I'm talking 90 percent of people in the world at some level know this is the truth that, oh, my God, Nixon and Reagan let Stephen King kill John Lennon. And our life is a ridiculous joke. Satan rules the planet. Everybody knows that at one level because we're not stupid. It's kind of like everybody knew when the Beatles were going to be on the next day. Just there's some kind of a universal knowledge we have, but everyone is so jealous that one man, Steve Lightfoot could have such a powerful story that he stumbled across by accident. And he's, it's going to change the course of history. It's bigger than history. Okay, so it's let's bigger than fame. And okay. people can't stand it that I got it. Okay, so let's talk about how you got it. And if people are uh, are uh, just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Lightfoot. His uh, website is uh, LennonMurderTruth.com. The booklet that he's written about the John Lennon murder is available on there. Uh, let's uh, provide some context to the theory. What evidence led you to conclude that Stephen King was involved in John Lennon's death? Okay, well, I knew the moment I heard Lon Lennon was shot that the government did it, that this was too big of a murder for some nobody to do. We're being lied again, just like Oswald. I don't believe one word of what I'm hearing. And I knew that the minute I heard he was shot. In fact, before he was shot, and he was making his comeback with his double fantasy album, a voice in my head says, oh, no, John, don't come back. They're going to kill you. And sure enough, they did. So about a year and a half after the murder, after my fellow man failed to demand a trial for the man who shot John Lennon, they let him skip trial because, well, Hinckley came along and shot Reagan. We had to change the subject. I'm even suspicious about that, okay? That whole Reagan-Brady thing. Right. Because the whole thing about killing John Lennon was to take away me. your guns, to make you hate your guns. And Reagan is suddenly making us hate our guns. As a matter of fact, Hinckley... Uh, Hinckley said that he shot Reagan because of John Lennon's murder, that America is a land where heroes are shot in the back. When John Lennon died, I died, you died, everybody died, the world died. So Hinckley was quoted as saying he shot Reagan because he thinks Reagan had John Lennon killed. Well, 
a year and a half later, after Chapman is wiped off of the map and replaced with Hinckley, then Hinckley is found insane. So everyone is thinking, oh, well, let's see, he thought Reagan shot John Lennon, so he was found insane. So, of course, that's not the case. That's exactly how the government does it, Frank. So, uh, okay, I'm buying for the sake of this discussion that, okay, Reagan and the government were involved in the uh, shooting of John Lennon, even though Reagan wasn't even president yet at the time that uh, John Lennon was killed. Totally legal. Totally legal. So, but where does Stephen King come from? That's kind of where I'm not. I'm not clear. Where, where where does his involvement come from? Where did you first draw the conclusion that Stephen King was somehow involved? Well, if I told you how I found the evidence that I'm going to, it's, uh, it's as if I'm the anointed one because the evidence fell on me like a waterfall. It's like I walked into the library one day and shazam, it hit me. Everything fell into perfect place. And here's how it happened. I read this little uh, clipping in the, in the newspaper on page 15 of the San Diego Union. Lennon assassin pleads guilty, sentenced 20 years to life. And a little teeny three and a three by four inch clipping on the bottom of page 15. I'm going, wait a minute, there's something very wrong with this, this piece of news. That should be seven inch headlines on the front page. Why is it buried back on page 15 and a little clipping? And the reason Chapman said he did it was because God told me to twice. How corny is that? So I knew the government killed him when I read that. All right. So, so about a month and a half, about a month and a half later, I found myself inextricably being drawn to a library, and I burst through the door like something big was going to happen. And sure enough, a year and a half after the murder, there's a copy of Us magazine on the first table I passed with John and Yoko on the cover. So I grabbed it, went back to the December 15, 1980 issues of Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and all these things. I wanted to read about what happened to Chapman so I can get a bearing on it how he got lost in the mix, how the biggest murder of our lives that caused more suicides than any murder in history, how the killer skipped trial without anybody complaining. So as I'm going through Time and Newsweek, I'm flipping through the magazine, and I'm not seeing anything about John Lennon's murder, but all the headlines are kind of acting funny. A bombshell case goes poofed, jailing the news, silencing an almost free press, blinding justice, FBI show of shows. I'm going, what the hell? And then I get to the headline above, just elected Reagan, and it ominously reads, who's in, who's out? I go, uh-oh, what is this? Reagan's in, Lennon's out? Is this some kind of codes that I'm fighting in the bold print at Time magazine? And I read the headline below the photo, and it says, fitting together the pieces of a complicated jigsaw puzzle. And then I look in the very foreground of this picture, the book by Richard Nixon, The Real War, is sitting right next to him, right in the foreground, like, read this book. And then I find the same pictures in Newsweek with the same funny business in the headlines. So I open that book in the library and I open right up to the page where he says how perhaps the nation that equates celebrity with wisdom that looks to rock stars as his oracles deserves to lose. But too many of America's intellectual and intellectual elite have shown themselves to be brilliant, creative, trendy, gullible, smug and blind in one eye. War is bad and peace is good. A posturing with words is everything. And they decide whether nations or leaders will be depicted as good or bad. The time has passed when we could equivocate, when we can hesitate and keep our feet out of the muddy waters. But, you know, we basically got to get in there and get our, our hands dirty and kill this guy because he's changing the world and he's stopping our military. And that's basically what, so I realized, my God, I think Time and Newsweek documented everything in the bold print and Nixon and Reagan are caught dead to right. So I left the library feeling nauseous, like, oh my God, what did I just, 
that this can't be true. So a week later, I went back to the library downtown San Diego, and I found a motherload of bold print codes. And I realized, oh, my God, I, this is for freaking real. I found cryptography in the bold print of Time and Newsweek. I got to get out of here. I don't know anybody in San Diego except this girlfriend. I had to leave a girlfriend behind and go back to Santa Rosa where I was raised so I wouldn't be killed. And up there, months later, I find Mark Chapman attached to a letter to the editor of U.S. News. And the letter says, like millions of volunteers in the armed forces, I am a pawn waiting for some giant hand to move me to some hostile square. How uncomfortable a soldier can feel when he finds out that a hand belongs to Ronald Reagan. Mark my words, I don't mind fighting for my country, but I hope those make such vital sense with his utmost wisdom. It's not only Mark Chapman, it's Mark David Chapman. It's not only Mark David Chapman, it's Mark David King Chapman. It's like, my God. So finally, I'm thinking, of, okay, I'm not, I'm not, you know, crazy. These are really, this is all adding up. And so finally, because the code's up to 75% frequency, uh, a week before the murder, and an average of about 40% of the codes of the bold print plug into John Lennon's murder, like all the President's Magazine, thinking about John Lennon, kiss, mm-hmm. kiss, bang, bang, ouch, ouch, the job Richard Nixon really wanted last in the opposition. And so sure. then I find this face, because the, the codes kind of peter out uh, the farther away you get from the murder, like way back in September of 1980, there's hardly anything. And I'm at that space stage in the library on the microfiche when this face rolls by and I go, wait a minute, that looked like the guy getting John Lennon's autograph. So I roll it back and it says, Stephen King, one great big Zippo lighter. I didn't know who Stephen King was. I'm not trying to pin the tail on this donkey. Believe me, I wish it was not Stephen right. King. Okay, got it. And then, so you see that that's what Stephen King looks like. And then when wait, did wait, you... Wait, 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 wait. So... I compared that photograph with the with the autograph hound, and I go, that's not Stephen King. That's Mark Chapman. Chapman's some kind of a dead Vietnam vet. The government's using his likeness to fool us all. And then a day later, I read the article about what I had just found. Stephen King, hottest offer of the cult, blah, blah, blah. I go, oh, no, 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 no. Not the guy who wrote The Shining and Carrie. And, oh, no, Nixon, you genius. Nobody's going to believe this now. Oh, are you the master criminal of the universe? Nobody's going to, if Stephen King admitted he did it, we wouldn't believe it. So that's where I was. And that's how I, I bet I found the same photo in Newsweek with a fresh haircut and a, and a new, and a new uh, situation where he's taking his glasses off and he's hiding his dimples because as much as Chapman and Stephen King do look alike, only Stephen King and the killer getting the autograph have dimples and only Stephen King and the autograph hound have glass prescription lenses that shrink what you see behind them. Right. So, um, Steve, just because we do have limited time here, what specific evidence is there that Stephen King was, let's say, in the vicinity of uh, of the Dakota the night that John Lennon was killed? You know, I've heard different people tie Richard Nixon and George H.W. Bush to the Kennedy assassination, for instance. Both of them were... Uh, in Dallas, either on that day or right near that day. Is there any evidence to suggest that Stephen King was in Midtown Manhattan in December of 1980? Yes. A photograph of Paul Goresh, the man who took the photograph of allegedly Mark Chapman getting the autograph. 
that photo captures him getting John Lennon's autograph, and the photos prove it's not Mark Chapman because Chapman does not have the dimples. He does not have the correct prescription glass lenses and the, the hair texture and everything. It's just not, it's just, it's close, but not there. So there's that evidence. Plus, the day after the murder, Stephen King, after he got a, 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 a what, what happened is that the, the police arrested Stephen King, put a coat over his head so nobody could photograph him, and they walked him into the station, and then they switched him with Chapman. That's and right. Where was Chapman right. at the, the time the, of that switch, right before the, the switch? Yeah, pol- Chapman was in the police station waiting to be switched with Stephen King. Inter- okay. Um, and, then, had- and then Stephen King was flown to Maine. Have you on a jet? Have wait, you, wait, 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 wait. And then the next day he wrote about it in the paper. His article was titled, I read the news today. Oh boy. So Stephen King hours after he killed John Lennon is up in Maine writing an article about John Lennon's murder in the banger daily news. That's how sick it is. Have you consulted or collaborated with any experts in, in criminology or forensic psychology to substantiate some of these uh, claims that you have? No, I'll tell you why. The whole world's phony. Anyone over the age of 15 is phony. And they're jealous of me. And they're going to try to shoot me down. And they're going to tell me everything. I, you know, if I, if I were to show you what I've been through in the courts here in Monterey County, since I hit town here five, six years ago, you wouldn't believe that all these things could happen to one person. But believe me, uh, the world is evil. The world is corrupt. The media is corrupt. Everybody, even Paul McCartney, who, who endorsed me once live at Berkeley camp concert, he goes, yeah, Steve, that's right. I don't know what you think, Berkeley, but I want you to know that we like it and we need you as a people to get to the promise. Even he, after trying to endorse me at Berkeley, is, is, is a wuss and probably jealous of John Lennon for overshadowing him and does not want to help me. The whole world is, a, I'm literally going to make a sign. Right now, my sign on my van says, I'm legit. So who's FOS, question mark? My next sign is going to say, you satanic brainwashed monsters. That's where we're at, people. The, the lone hero with a handful of diamonds is having the world knock his hand so the diamonds get scattered all over the bushes trying to deny what he has found. Steve, No, folks, I found it. Can you handle the truth is the question. W- were you arrested 10 years ago for trespassing at Stephen King's home? No, never arrested for that. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I went to Bangor, Maine in 1992, and I was there for six months. And Stephen King even approached me within six inches of me, and he's trying to get my attention. And I'm playing a song about him on my guitar in the center of downtown Bangor, Maine. And he finally realizes, realizes I'm not going to give him the time of day. And, he, and before he skulks away, he, he whispers, stuttering, to, to, to take care. I will, will want you to, 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 to take care. I, uh, Steve, uh, away. On, on that note, uh, we are out of time. Um, maybe we can continue this in the future. Uh, if people want to learn more about the theories of Steve Lightfoot, you go to the website, LennonMurderTruth.com. I, uh, I don't know about you. I'm convinced. That's it. All right. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 
before the uh, top of the hour, um, we'll squeeze in a couple of quick calls here. I'm curious if Steve Lightfoot uh, convinced any of you that uh, Stephen King actually murdered John Lennon. Mike on Long Island, what about it? Are you convinced? Uh, no, I'm not. Actually, you know, things come along once in a while that you realize this time is lost and you can never get it back. And that's about 10 minutes of my life I will <laughs> never get back. We'll send you a receipt. Thank you. Robert in Pearl River, what about you? Did he convince you? Well, if he convinced me, then I'm Roger Moore then, okay? <laughs> that, that's unbelievable. How could, he admitted he killed him, uh, John Chapman. What? I mean, I think he's going to get angry, Stephen King. You see, did he die, Stephen King? I don't even remember. Is he still alive? No, both Stephen King and Mark David Chapman are still alive. Oh, if he was alive, he'd be pissed. He should probably sue this guy. I don't know. That's a joke. That's a ridiculous thing. It gets so crazy, uh, you know, Frank, with all this stuff. Thank you, Robert. Norman in Brooklyn, you convinced? Uh, absolutely not, Frank. That was disturbing. If you look in the dictionary under paranoid schizophrenia, I think that guy pretty much, they got a picture of him. All right. So, uh, look, so far it doesn't seem like Steve convinced anybody. Uh, I don't know how that could be, um, but apparently not convinced. All right. Uh, we're going to do denunciations after the top of the hour, and then uh, Robert Davi will be here next hour. We'll chat a little bit about uh, what's happening in the world of entertainment, the movies, and music, little politics, a bunch of other things as well. We'll take your uh, calls on any subject, 800-848-9222, and then uh, some other fun stuff a little bit later on. In the meantime, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.